In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I invite you to stand if you are able for the reading of God's word this morning from Titus chapter 3, verses 3 through 8. These are Paul's words to Titus, who was a, a, a servant, a co-worker with Paul. Paul had left him on the island of Crete to organize and, and sustain the believers there. And so this is a, it's a brief, it's a brief letter, and uh, but beautiful instruction that uh, that Paul gives to his uh, fellow servant and partner in the gospel. So Titus chapter three verses three through eight. At one time, we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by His grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. This is a trustworthy saying, and I want you to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable for everyone. You may be seated. When I was at the uh, Together for the Gospel conference uh, a little over a, a month ago, one of the speakers shared a story about a family's first trip to Yellowstone National Park, and they had gone there to see Old Faithful. And after witnessing the eruption of this old geyser, the family spent the next hour in the dining room at the Old Faithful Inn. And in that dining room, if you've ever been there, I, I have not, but maybe you have, in that dining room there is a, a countdown clock and a large picture window for people to view the eruption of Old Faithful. And when the clock began to count down, all of the patrons at the diner began to get up from their tables and make their way over to the picture window. And when Old Faithful erupted right on schedule, they all clapped and cheered and oohed and awed and took pictures. But while all the patrons were captivated by this event, the waitstaff at the diner was preoccupied. And they were all just going about their duties, wiping down tables and cleaning dishes, refilling water glasses, sweeping the floors. And they never even bothered to look out the window. They had become so familiar with Old Faithful that its wonder and greatness no longer impressed them. And like the wait staff at the Old Faithful Diner, it is so easy for many of us as Christians to grow unimpressed with the wonder and the greatness of our salvation. It has become so familiar to us that it no longer moves us. And when it reveals itself in all its glory, sometimes you don't even bother to pay attention. 
In our text this morning, the Apostle Paul helps us to reclaim the wonder of our salvation. And he does this by, by showing us in these verses four truths about our salvation. And so he, he shows us from what condition we are saved and on what basis we are saved, by what means we are saved, and then for what purpose we are saved. And so as we consider these four truths this morning, it is my, my hope and prayer that we take care to see them and to appreciate anew the wonder of our salvation. So we see first from what condition we are saved. And in, in the broadest, this is to give you sort of a, uh, an orientation to the concept of salvation. In the, in the broadest sense, the word saved means simply deliverance from danger or peril. And, and it can have a wide range of meanings throughout the Bible, uh, not only in the, in the secular sense, but even throughout Scripture can have a wide range of meanings from uh, national deliverance to uh, physical healing and all kinds of applications like that. But, but in Paul's writings, it typically refers to deliverance from the penalty and power of sin. And that's the meaning here in Titus chapter 3. So our salvation in the context of Titus 3 and in most of Paul's other writings is uh, a deliverance from a life dominated, ruled, and condemned to judgment by the sinful nature. We see the condition from which we are saved in verse 3 where Paul says, at one time we too were foolish, disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. So this is, this is at least a glimpse of life apart from salvation in Christ. And what a miserable and empty life it is. Enslaved to the sinful nature, ruled by sinful passions and pleasures, ignorant of God's riches, rebels to his will, filled with the evil disposition of malice, consumed by that, that soul-eating virus of envy, and going through life hated and hating one another. I saw a video a while back of a guy driving in his car on, the, on, a, on a freeway and just uh, singing along to the radio as he drove, kind of carefree, driving along 70 miles an hour. And as he was driving and singing along, another car came, uh, pulled up beside him in the lane next to him, and, and he was shaking his fist, and he was mad, and he was angry because apparently the singing guy had done something to offend this other driver. And so he's shaking his fist, and he's mad, and he's angry, and he's cursing. And, and then at one point, he rolls down his window, and he takes his cup of coffee, and he throws it out the window onto the car of the guy who had been singing. And you can imagine how that went. The guy who had been singing didn't take that very well, and so he got mad and angry, and, and he responded, and it re led to sort of this, this cycle of, of a back-and-forth exchange of, of anger and rage as they're speeding down the freeway 70 miles an hour. And at one point, this guy who had been singing got so upset that he actually pulled out a gun from the center console and he began to fire at the car next to him. And the whole thing happened in a matter of seconds. And so one moment, the guy's just singing along to the radio. And the next, he's firing rounds into the car of a complete stranger. And this, of course, is just is, is one very 
specific and, and, uh, and, and uh, extreme example, but it offers at least a little glimpse of humanity dominated by and ruled by the sinful nature. And it manifests itself in, in, in many more ways than just road rage. Like Paul says, apart from Christ, we are enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures, ruled by selfish ambition, entrenched in self-interest, dominated by lust and greed. In fact, commenting on this verse, I, I love the way William Hendrickson put it when he said, the world apart from Christ passes in review in this verse, he says. And what a sorry spectacle it is. For here we come, the glutton and the toper, the miser and the spendthrift, the madcap and the dotard, the sports worshiper and the sluggard, the fraud and the fop, the sadist and the rapist, the tiger and the wolf. This is a little glimpse of the condition from which we have been saved. It is from this miserable and empty condition that we are saved. Behold the wonder of our salvation that we have been saved from a life dominated and ruled by the sinful nature. The second truth that we see in these verses is on what basis we are saved. Paul says that we are saved on the basis of God's mercy. He says, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, he saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Well, this is the distinctive mark of Christianity, isn't it? We, we don't earn our salvation. We, we don't perform righteous acts to, to contribute to our salvation. We, we don't tally up enough good deeds to persuade God to grant us salvation. Our salvation is entirely and completely the work of God on our behalf. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. It was, I think, the, uh, the great Bible teacher and evangelist Henry Ironside from the early 20th century who told about a time that he was uh, sharing the gospel on, a, in a, on the streets, doing street evangelism, sharing the gospel on a, on a street in a large city in California. And at one point, uh, somebody came to him and kind of challenged him and said, you know, there are, there's a hundred different religions in the world. What makes you so convinced that yours is the right one? And Ironside responded graciously, but responded by saying, you know, it's interesting you say there are a hundred different religions in the world, because as, as I see it, there, there's really only two. At least he says two categories or two groups of religions. On, in one group, he says, are all the religions that, that teach salvation by doing. And in the other group, he says, there's only one. Christianity stands alone in teaching salvation by what has been done for you. And that's the sense that we get here in Paul's letter to Titus as well. We are saved on the basis of God's mercy. And the basic meaning of that word mercy is to show kindness or concern for someone in serious need. When Paul uses the word to describe God's act of salvation, it takes on the sense of, of gracious faithfulness. And the word has ties to the, to the Hebrew word hesed, which is a word we've looked at many times before, that, that rich, deep, significant word that, that refers to God's character of steadfast love and his unwavering loyalty, his persistent loving kindness towards his people. 
It is on this basis that we are saved. Our sinful condition leaves us in serious need of deliverance, and God delivers us based purely on His kindness and concern for us. And so the good news of the gospel of Jesus Christ is that we are saved not on the basis of anything that we do for God, but purely and entirely on what God has done for us. In fact, Paul makes this even more clear in his letter to the Ephesians when he says, It is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works so that no one can boast. Our salvation is entirely and completely the work of God. I love the way Milton Vincent puts it in his little book, A Gospel Primer for Christians. He says, As for myself, apart from Christ... I am bound by the guilt of my sins and also bound by the power of sin, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures. I am utterly, utterly deserving of and destined for eternal punishment in the lake of fire, completely unable to save myself or even to make one iota of a contribution to my own salvation. That sums it up pretty well, doesn't it? However, However, or as Paul says in Ephesians 2, but God, however, what I could not do, God did. And in doing it, he did it all, sending his own son into the world to die on the cross for my sins and thereby showing me unfathomable love. Behold the wonder of our salvation, that we are saved not on the basis of our works, but on the basis of God's mercy. That brings us to the third truth of salvation. We see in this text by what means we are saved. Paul says that God saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. We are saved by means of a rebirth and a renewal that is accomplished by the Holy Spirit. And that word rebirth is a, a translation of the Greek word palingenesia, which is a compound word, palin meaning again, genesia meaning birth or born, so literally again born. Just as the birth of a baby is a whole new beginning, a, a whole new existence, a, a transition from the pre-birth reality inside the womb to the post-birth reality outside of the womb, so too our salvation is a new beginning a new existence, a change from our pre-conversion reality of enslavement to sin to our post-conversion reality of new life in Christ. Which is why Jesus said to Nicodemus, no one can see the kingdom of God unless he is born again. We are saved when the Holy Spirit awakens us from our deadness in sin and gives us new birth in the way and the truth and the life of Christ. Which is why Paul said to the Corinthians, if anyone is in, in, in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. New beginning, new existence, new creation. In fact, Paul goes so far as to say that the old self is slain when the new self is reborn. He said to the Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. And I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And so we are saved by means of rebirth, which is the work of the Holy Spirit who is poured out generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. And so we come really then to the heart of the matter, don't we? 
The clear teaching of Scripture is that there is no salvation outside of Jesus Christ. It is only those who submit to Christ in true faith as Savior and Lord who are saved. As Peter said to the Jewish elders and teachers, uh, Jesus is the stone that you builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. And so as Paul said to the Romans, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Edwin Rushworth had been a a skeptic his whole life, and he mocked the Christian faith, and he scoffed at the Bible until one day a friend convinced him to to just to read it. He had never read it. He said, if you're going to mock it so much, and and taunt it and, and make fun of it, you, you better at least read it. And so he said, spend an hour a day reading this book that you so have despised for so long. And so he said, all right, I can do that, an hour a day. He said, and his friend said, give it a few weeks and see what happens. And after a week of reading, he said to his wife, my dear, if this book is right, then we are all wrong. And after the second week of reading, he said to his wife, my dear, if this book is right, then we are lost. And by the end of the third week, he said to his wife, my dear, if this book is right, then we are able to be saved. And the Holy Spirit awakened their hearts that had been dead in their skepticism and sin, and they were made alive with Christ and came to salvation. Behold, the wonder of our salvation They were saved by means of the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit who is poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. The final truth of salvation that Paul shows us in this text is for what purpose we are saved. Paul says, God saved us so that, and the word, the uh, phrase so that is a translation of the Greek henna, which is a purpose clause, so literally for the purpose of, God saved us for the purpose of having been justified by his grace that we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. So that is the purpose, that we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. An heir, of course, is one who has the right to an inheritance. And in in the case of, of believers, the inheritance that we stand to receive as heirs is eternal life in the glorious presence of God, in the glory of his kingdom. And the Bible describes this inheritance in the grandest of terms. I want to share just a little snippet of you of that with you this morning. I, I didn't get very far. I, I thought, what, what does the Bible really say about this inheritance of ours? And I only made it through a few chapters of Isaiah and a couple chapters of Revelation. And there's so much more than this, but just listen to some of the images with which the Bible describes this inheritance of ours. A feast of rich food, a banquet of aged wine, a river of life with fruit-bearing trees, stagnant waters teeming with fish, deserts transformed into gardens, the heavens shouting for joy, the earth rejoicing, mountains bursting into song, trees of the field clapping their hands. Heads crowned with everlasting joy, 
Hearts overtaken by gladness, bodies clothed with splendor and strength, tears wiped from all faces. Shalom regained. Unbroken fellowship with God and fellow humans and all of creation, the whole earth filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord, the wolf living with the lamb, swords beaten into plowshares, spears turned into pruning hooks, a new heaven and a new earth, a city built with stones of turquoise and walls of jasper, gates of pearls and streets of pure gold, no more death or mourning or crying or pain, no more hunger and thirst, no more violence and injustice, no more sin and curse and sorrow. And we didn't even make it out of a few chapters of Isaiah and two chapters of Revelation. After describing all the glories of the new heaven and the new earth, God said to John in Revelation 21, those who are victorious in Christ will will inherit all of this. And I will be their God. And they will be my children. As heirs, we inherit all the glories of everlasting life in the kingdom of God. And, and here is a truth so glorious that it, makes, that it makes the earth's greatest joys pale in comparison and earth's greatest afflictions appear as dust on the scale. It was the assurance of this inheritance that moved Paul to say to the Corinthians, though outwardly we are wasting away, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. This is Paul saying our light and momentary troubles. Do you remember what Paul's light and momentary troubles were? Stoned, persecuted, driven out of cities, shipwrecked, almost drowned, beaten almost to death, imprisoned. Our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. It was the assurance of this inheritance that moved Peter to burst into praise at the beginning of his letter, saying, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into this inheritance that can never perish, spoil, or fade, and is kept in heaven for you through faith. Behold the wonder of our salvation, that we have been made heirs of eternal life in the unsearchable glories of the kingdom of Christ. So these are four deep and biblical and beautiful truths about our salvation in Christ. May we see in them the wonder of our salvation. But Paul is not quite finished yet. He goes on to say, as we conclude this morning, what our response should be. What our response should be to this wonder of our salvation. And he says we are to be devoted to doing what is good. He says to Titus, I I want you to to stress these things, that is the truths of salvation, so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. That's a persistent theme throughout Paul's letter to Titus, this idea of doing what is good, loving what is good, teaching what is good. Our our identity as those who have been saved by God through faith in Christ ought to make us stand out from the rest of the world. That's what Paul is is getting at. If we have been saved by such a wonderful gift of grace, then we we ought to live like it. And we have to understand that 
Paul was writing these words to Titus who lived on the island of Crete. And, and Cretan culture was infamous for its moral bankruptcy, its moral depravity. They were a people given to laziness and lies, to gluttony and greed. In fact, as Paul said to Titus in chapter 1, one of Crete's own prophets has said it. Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. And this saying, he says, is true. Not politically correct, but true. It was a crooked and depraved culture. It was a culture entrenched in all the things that Paul listed in, in verse 3, which he read earlier, foolishness, disobedience, deception, enslaved to sinful passions and pleasures, consumed with malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. This was the atmosphere in which the believers found themselves on the island of Crete. And more and more, this is the atmosphere in which we find ourselves in an increasingly post-Christian nation. And Paul's message for them, then, is the same message for us. In a culture given to foolishness, we are to be a people of godly wisdom. In a culture of disobedience, we are to be uncompromising in our commitment to live in obedience to God's Word. In a culture enmeshed in deception, we are to be devoted to the truth. In a world enslaved by sinful passions and pleasures, we are to live as those who have been set free from sin and have become slaves to righteousness. In a world consumed with malice and envy, we are to be a people of kindness and contentment. In a world of people who are hated and hating one another, we are to live as those loved by God and loving one another. Be careful, Paul says, to devote yourselves to doing what is good. Man, what a, what a difference that would make in a world that is so desperate to see what true goodness looks like. You've been saved, Paul says, now live like it. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Let the depraved world around you see the wonder of God's salvation through your saved life. And then as Paul said to the Philippians, you will shine like stars in the dark sky of a warped and crooked generation as you hold firmly to the word of life. In the dining room, at the old faithful inn, the waitstaff didn't even bother to look when the old geyser erupted in all its glory. It had become so familiar to them that it was no longer impressive. May it not be so for us. When God displays the glory of his salvation through scripture and through song and through conversation, let us lift up our eyes and our hearts to see it. Let us never stop basking in the wonder of what God has done for us in Christ. And living, dying, let us bring our strength, our solace from this spring, that he who lives to be our king once died to be our savior. Let's bow together. Lord God, as we come before your throne this morning in a time of silent response and prayer, I pray, O oh Lord, that if there is anyone here this morning who has not been drawn to a saving faith by the work of your Holy Spirit, 
the regenerating work of your spirit in their hearts. And I pray, O oh Lord, that your spirit might do that work in them this morning. And Lord, for those who have been drawn to a saving faith, for those who have received the gift of salvation through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord, I pray, O oh Lord, that you would give us new eyes to see the wonder of this gift. O oh Lord, hear our prayers as we offer them silently before your throne this morning. O oh Lord, show us anew the wonder of this gift of salvation in Christ and our identity in him as those who have been saved, who are saved, delivered from the power and the penalty of sin. And may we, as the prophet Isaiah said, Delight greatly in you, O Lord. May our soul rejoice in you, our God. For you have clothed us in Christ with garments of salvation. You have arrayed us in Christ in a robe of his perfect righteousness. O Lord, may we never stop singing and delighting and basking in the wonder of our salvation, which has been given to us freely through the work of Christ at the old rugged cross. It's in his name we pray. Amen.